to the Prepared Mindset Podcast. I am your host, as always, Austin. And I have uh, a really, really special guest uh, joining me this week, um, Mr. Thomas Baker. Thomas is a 36-year Marine Corps veteran uh, with a lot of interesting experience, uh, and he's and he's doing a lot of good work now that he is out of the Corps, um, building and developing a training site in Wyoming called Cross Rifles Ranch. Um, so I had the opportunity to sit down for oh, about an hour, hour and a half with uh, with Thomas and, and talk to him uh, about, you know, where he's been, what he's done. Uh, we, we get into what he's doing now, right? Uh, really good conversation. He's actually um, a friend of the family. Uh, my my mother and my family have, have known uh, him and his brother, um, who is also a Marine veteran, um, for years and years and years. So uh, Thomas's experience is, is vast, and it spans from the, uh, the Cold War era on through the Global War on Terror in a, in a multi, multi, multiple multitude of roles and experiences. So uh, really good discussion. Uh, I was very excited to have the opportunity to sit down and speak with him. Um, before I get to that, though, uh, for all you guys to enjoy, I do need to make sure I thank our supporting sponsor. This is a sponsored podcast, mymedic.com. Guys, uh, it's it's September. September, if you didn't know, is National Preparedness Month. Um, and if you didn't know, head over to mymedic.com and they will let you know. They have sales on all sorts of stuff right now. Um, last week, it was uh, a sale on their MyFAC, 20% off their MyFAC. And then uh, this week, I believe they have their their 10 Essentials kit on sale. Guys, whatever you need, right? Whether it's a MyFAC, which I think covers up to a group of three people, four people. Uh, you need something larger than that that's going to cover a group of, you know, four to six people. Whatever it is, guys. Dude, my medic has you guys completely covered. Even if it's just restocking your existing medical kit. Maybe you don't need the whole deal. Maybe you just need some supplies from the last time you had an incident uh, with a bad cut, right? Stop the bleed kit. They have those. You can pick those up. Just those essential supplies and pieces. They've got uh, you know everything from those small refill type kits up to the large, like I said, six to eight people uh, kits. Uh, individual components, right? Maybe you just need to pick up a, uh, a tourniquet, right? Maybe uh, you're building out your car kit, so you need a tourniquet or... Uh, you need, uh, you know, just some odds and ends to throw together. Maybe something to send with your uh, college student. Now that college campuses are, are back open and uh, and operating after the Rona has pretty much uh, moved out, um, you know, they got everything that you could need and a whole lot more. Guys, head over to mymedic.com. They hooked us up with our discount code Mindset Twenty to save you twenty percent off your order. What's better than that, though, is they're actually an affiliate partner of the podcast here. So if you guys head over to our Facebook page, look up the Prepared Mindset Podcast on Facebook. In our offer section, there is our affiliate link. You can go through there. You'll still go to the same old MyMedic website. You'll still get the sale price for uh, National Preparedness Month. You can still use Mindset 20 to save 20% off your order. But if you use that link specifically, it helps kick back a little bit of change to the Prepared Mindset Project, everything that we're doing here, uh, so that we can keep on doing everything that we're doing here. Head over to MyMedic.com. 
check those guys out, pick up what you need. Like I said, uh, I had the opportunity to sit down uh, today and speak with uh, Thomas Baker. It is uh, it was a great discussion. Um, a couple other things worth noting today. Uh, it is September 9th, 2021, which may go down in history as one of the largest victories for the pro-Second Amendment community as uh, the Biden administration has announced that they are pulling David Chipman as their um, candidate as the next director of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Um, if you guys haven't been following up on that story, you, well, you should have been, but um, this is a huge win for the, the 2A community um, as, as that guy is basically as uh, anti-Second Amendment as, as shit gets. I mean, really, truly um, spent the last like 20 years on boards of uh, gun control lobbyist groups would have been a very, very big problem for this country and for the Second Amendment uh, community, right, uh, if he would have made it into that position, um, as if we don't already have enough problems with uh, groups or you know, agencies like the ATF trying to overreach with opinion letters and, you know, attack things like braces and bump stocks and all other good stuff. So Chipman is definitely not getting in. That's a huge victory for us. Um, we also had an announcement say there might be a potential COVID uh, vaccine mandate uh, through the Department of Labor. So uh, already getting calls from uh, social media uh, that rebellious action should be taken. So things are heating up around here in the old continental U.S. So stay tuned for more on that. But um, before we get too much, uh, get too far from the point, let's get into the conversation. Myself interviewing uh, Mr. Thomas Baker, 36-year Marine Corps veteran. Check it out and enjoy, everybody. Mr. Baker, thank you for joining me. Please, Tom. Tom, not a problem. Thanks for taking the time. I know you're you're busy with a lot uh, a lot going on out there in uh, Wyoming, correct? Yes, yes. Today it was uh, trusses on the barn and uh, propane to four buildings. <laughs> so, <laughs> sounds like it's always something, right? I mean, you're, you guys are doing a lot of work out there, yeah? A lot of work. The the build is approximately. Uh, the equivalent of 7,500 square feet within four buildings. Yeah, so that's that's a little bit. Yeah, it's, that's a little bit of work. Um, so uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, just introduce yourself to our, our listeners and maybe just uh, give a little bit of information about yourself and we'll, we'll jump on in. <clears throat> okay. Uh, well, to start with, I retired from the Marine Corps with 36 years in... Um, well, on March 1st of 2019, and I um, had a very, I would say, interesting career, both as enlisted and officer, um, reserve, and active duty. I was also a non-uniform um, service provider, um, commonly referred to as a contractor. So I was over in Iraq as a non-uniform uh, service provider for 15 months doing forensics. Oh, wow. Uh, after uh, retiring in March, March 1st, 2019, I uh, decided to relocate to Wyoming, uh, specifically the Laramie area, Southeast Wyoming. And I embarked upon a rather ambitious build of a house, uh, six bay uh, garage, 10-stall horse barn 
uh, subgrade greenhouse and a meat processing building. So it's kind of grown. It's taken a life of its own. Keeps me very busy. Yeah, I'd imagine. <laughs> and I've also started a business called Cross Rifles Ranch. And this build is in support of that business and that vision to take my training and my experiences and my networking of other experienced and knowledgeable individuals and provide anywhere from the individual to the family, to the group, um, adventures, activities, uh, specialized training, um, all on this compound within 107 acres and uh, hopefully uh, to increase their adrenaline and, <laughs> and teach them something. So that's, yeah. that's the plan. And that's a lot. Um, so <clears throat> just starting at the beginning, um, were, did you, uh, and I, you have to, uh, excuse me, I don't, I don't know uh, a lot of the ins and outs with uh, any of the branches of the military, but um, did you hold the same, uh, I guess, job or title uh, in all 30 uh, plus years that you were in the Marine Corps? Um, did that change? And um, was it something that you wanted to do? I guess uh, I hear a lot of, um, I don't want to say horror stories, but a lot of stories about um, people that sign up for one thing and they end up for something else, you know? Yes. <clears throat> no, I don't have any problem with my recruiter. Uh, he, he was uh, <laughs> honest and forthright. I enlisted in 1983, uh, delayed entry actually in 1982, physically stood on the yellow footprints in 1983. I had a contract for aviation ordinance 6536, did that for a number of years. I ended up cleaning, uh, I thought I would be loading aircraft, be it helicopters or fixed wing. As it turned out, I was cleaning 50 cal machine guns Oh, five wow. days a week, eight hours a day for a year and a half to the point where I wanted to shoot my face off. So I said, okay, how do I get out of this? So I was, sure. I didn't have enough rank to be a drill instructor. I didn't um, have the desire to be a recruiter, didn't have enough rank either. So the only opportunity that presented itself to me was Marine Security Guard. And those are the individuals that guard the inside or the interior of U.S. embassies, legations, and consulates. Oh, okay. So, so I applied for that, interviewed, uh, was accepted, and uh, I was class 286 in March of 1983. It, and after that, I was assigned to my first uh, um, post, which was Jerusalem. I did 15 months there, and we had an unfortunate situation on the program. There was uh, Sergeant Lone Tree and Corporal Arnold Bracey were accused of espionage. People can Google that and find out all the details. Yeah. As it affected all those currently out in the field on posts was typically if you have a hardship assignment, you get a good assignment. If you have a good assignment, you go to a hardship assignment. Well, all that was thrown out the window. Um, there were 140 posts at the time, and they were ranked from the number one hardship, which was Kabul, Afghanistan, to the number 140, which was considered the best. This is all according to the Department of State. 
And Jerusalem was 78. So I put in for Eastern Bloc countries and I got none of my first five choices. I was assigned to the number one hardship, Kabul, Afghanistan, for one year during the Soviet occupation. And say that this is Cold War era, yeah. Yes, the Cold War era. And uh, I, li- I like how you phrase that. Yes, that was a long time ago. <laughs> and I did a year there. Uh, I got out, put myself through college. I didn't take any of the offered um, commissioning programs. I went to Eastern Michigan University two and a half years later. I uh, approximately two and a half years later, I accepted my commission as a Marine Corps officer with the MOS of 5803, which is military police officer. And I had done, um, I went the route of the platoon leaders course, which meant in the summers between the academic years, I would go to Quantico, Virginia for six weeks, platoon leaders course junior, go back the next year, platoon leaders course senior, uh, graduate, accept your commission, and then go to the basic school at Quantico for six months. So that was the route I took. So <clears throat> during that time, you mentioned you mentioned Israel. And so from here on out, I guess, in your career, after you became uh, a Marine security uh, officer, uh, was that uh, the role that you, you, you stayed in for the duration of your career? Um, I guess uh, it was, was that because um, you mentioned your first uh, job you didn't uh, enjoy so much. So um, was this more to your liking? Um, and, you know, is it something like I said, was it something you stayed there for the rest of your career? Well, no, it's only offered to enlisted. Uh, there are some officers on the program, but very few. And they're in a supervisory and leadership role, not a watch standard role. And I had done 30 months on the program, which was on average about the length of the, of the program. Uh, okay. some for 15 months, some assignments were a year, so on and so forth. Sure. Uh, after that, though, when the program ended, so did my extension. I had to extend on active duty. So I had done five years active duty. My, my contract was four, but I had to extend for a year for this, which I did. It was a great, great opportunity. I still keep in touch with uh, a few folks uh, from that time frame. And just really solid people, great experience, nothing but uh, great things to say about that program. Um, but it did come to a conclusion, and I had to think, what was I going to do next? I didn't want to enter the Fleet Marine Force as a uh, aviation ordnance man. So I said, time to get out, go to college. I found out in very short order that uh, I liked the Marine Corps. I didn't want to end completely. So I stayed in the reserves during college and uh, did my two six-week periods, as I mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. and then went back in uh, after uh, receiving my commission as a uh, military police officer. So that was a long answer. To a short question, I did not maintain my 6536 MOS aviation ordinance as an officer. I switched to 5803, which is military police officer. Okay. Yeah. And so, I, and I guess that was one of my questions too, because I didn't really understand if, um, like, the security role versus a military police officer was somehow different, um, or if there's overlap there. Um, 
I could see it going both ways, but I mean, is it essentially one in the same, um, or is it really two different positions? With, uh, very different. One okay. is a Marine security guard responsible for the protection of personnel classified information and U.S. government property. Inside interior security, host nation was responsible for exterior security, Marine security guards, interior security, as enlisted. Military okay. police officer um, at the time, I still think it's the case, is uh, considered for officers a uniquely qualified position. So you have to, as an officer, um, depending on your ranking and graduation of the basic school, you go in and you pick your MOS. Now, there's some exceptions. Judge Advocate General, obviously you need a law degree and you have, have to have passed the bar. Of course. Yeah. There are flight contracts that are, individuals are guaranteed a flight contract. Um, and then there's uniquely qualified positions, and military police is one of them, where you had to have previous experience or something unique that qualifies you to be a military police officer in the Marine Corps um, because there's just very few of them, and it's a unique um, billet or assignment. So, yeah, because you had spent your time as the security uh, in the security position, was that your unique qualification? Yes. That, or what they considered, yeah. And the criminal justice degree, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that didn't hurt either, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, so from there, um, let's get into that a little bit. Um, once you got into the new role in the military police, uh, where did that take you? So I know you've been... Uh, around the world quite a bit from you know just things uh that we had talked about previously um what were some of the places that you ended up going in that uh, role well within six months of graduating my a school which um, was military police officer course and that course was provided by the u.s army in texas after that i uh, was assigned to headquarters battalion first marine division and within six months, I was in Mogadishu, Somalia, as a platoon commander of 35 Marines, 2nd Platoon, MP Company, Headquarters Battalion, 1st Marine Division in Mogadishu, Somalia. Arrived there on Christmas Day, 1992. So I was just going to ask, when was that? Because uh, I know the um, the Battle of Mogadishu was uh, 93, correct? Yes, October. Okay, so you were were you there for that incident? The MP company had left in late May, early June, if I recall correctly. So we left approximately three months before the Black Hawk Down yeah. situation. And that, and and I've actually I've I've read a bit on that and uh, things leading up to that point and. Um, certainly, uh, an eye-opening experience in a number, I think, uh, in a number of ways. But um, so, let me ask: when when you were there in country, um, was the, I mean, the situation was about the same, right? There was a lot of turmoil there. There was a lot of um, hostility going on. There was, uh, I mean, things didn't just drastically escalate in the time between when you guys left and the Battle of Mogadishu, right? Well, within six months, the mission had had scoped into three different specialties within the Marine Corps. The first one was humanitarian. We went there. We 
helped ensure that the food that came off the ships and came off the trucks um, was distributed at the feeding centers. There was a little bit more to it, but generally speaking, when we arrived, when the Marines arrived, it was humanitarian mission. Then it turned into military operations in urban terrain, confiscating weapons, um, vehicle patrols. Our platoon uh, would do two day patrols and a night patrol, and the next day we would do one day patrol and two night patrols, presence patrols as they're commonly referred to. Yep, and I um, in and the the book that I read, conflict. and and I had read about that uh, the the presence patrols that is specifically um, and part of it at least from uh, I can't remember the gentleman's name um, that wrote the book, but uh, it was it, for at least from their understanding was waiting for the go ahead right for the operation that ended up actually being uh, the Black Hawk Down incident. Um, and it, they kind of highlighted a lot on the political decisions that they kind of held things back quite a bit and scaled back the presence there. Um, and I think a lot of a lot would probably consider what led to some of the the problems that occurred. Um, so was that a the presence patrols? Is that like a is that typical? I uh, I guess in a situation like that, just help keep some kind of order. Um, or was that something to uh, maybe keep uh, appearances up so there was, um, I guess, less sensitivity to when they might be launching an operation? Well, I, I wouldn't. I would say that it wasn't out of the ordinary. Presence patrols, vehicle patrols. Uh, we had our Humvees, soft-skinned Humvees at the time. So, so no armor. It's not like you see in Iraq or or Afghanistan where the Humvees, you know, were armored, multiple generation armor upgrade packages. These were soft-skinned Humvees, cargo variants. Uh, we did have some um, uh, Humvees that had gun turrets in them. Uh, mm-hmm. but it, was, uh, it was very much on the light-skinned side of things. So at that time, halfway through our six-month tour, we this was still military operations in urban terrain mount it, it wasn't low intensity conflict it wasn't people shooting at us people tossing in hand grenades into vehicles um that okay. happened at the very end and, and then we had left and shortly after we had left the pakistanis were ambushed and uh, i believe at least three dozen were killed in one attack and then a few weeks later, October Black Hawk Down. Jeez, and that, um, and it's, I mean, hindsight always being twenty twenty, right? But it's, uh, and and again, from somebody who's looking at it from from the outside in, um, just the amount that was learned from things like that, like you mentioned the the light skinned Humvees. I remember reading about um, some of the Delta guys that were involved with that actually. Um, you know, cutting up the back of one of those Humvees and stacking, you know, sandbags in it because there was no armor. So that way they would be able to shoot out of the back of it or something, you know, as they needed Um, things like, uh, and one of the things that the, at least my understanding again, that the movie did get right uh, was the uniforms, right? Things were kind of all together in a way that you you had desert camouflage, but then all black tactical gear that went with it. And, 
you know, I, I guess just a, a drastic learning experience for some of those, uh, you know, unfortunately that they came from that experience and, um, that, that incident, um, it's just uh, I, crazy to, to think that that's the kind of thing that would happen, uh, you know, those decisions and whatnot. But I think as, as time's gone on, you know, we see a little bit more of that. And like I said, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yes, it is. And uh, Donald Rumsfeld has a quote, and uh, it was from the Iraq war. Uh, he was questioned by a reporter about the equipment at the time it was related to Humvees not being armored, truly armored. Metal metal doors are not armor. Uh, that was the first generation of armor went on top of the metal door. Um, but Donald Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense at the time, had said, well, you go to war with the gear you have. And uh, right. I think I got that pretty accurate. And uh, it was not well received. Uh, I think there was a tinge of uh, frustration and arrogance in his response. Um, but you you do, you do uh, he, he was accurate. You do go to war with the gear that you have, so you make the most of it. And I think, um, you know, to that point, to that, that quote, um, I think that's why we saw so much uh, development advancement, right, in the, probably in the last 20 years or so with the war on terror, um, development and things like firearms and, and training around vehicles, right? Um, unfortunately, sometimes it just takes those kinds of drastic uh, circumstances, right, to, to push uh, into that uh, environment right that breeds innovation um and advancement in those kinds of areas you know i know during uh you know the early obviously through the 90s in the clinton administration uh in office i always found it uh, i guess in my research and everything that it, democratic leadership seems to want to spread the military very thin while slicing the budget back to um almost anemic levels kind of like they want to have their cake and eat it too uh type deal um would you say that in your experiences that that was uh that that was accurate um with things like equipment and uh resources well i wouldn't blame any one party if if i was to generalize in response to your question i would say generally speaking the democrats do cut back on appropriations for the Department of Defense, and that has a lot of negative ramifications to that. The Republicans, mm-hmm. on the other, they'll throw money at the wall. They'll spend money like <laughs> so. That's it's not, true. It's not a very good use. It's not an efficient use. So I, I don't, I don't say one party is better or worse than the other. Both of them do the wrong things for the wrong reasons. That's a fair point. Yeah. And I think we see that more than anything in today's politics. Um, but <clears throat> so after you, after you, you left um, Somalia uh, in, you said, I believe you said May of 93, where did you go next? Uh, I finished up my active duty at Camp Pendleton until 95. Uh, I got out. I, uh, was hired with Electronic Data Systems, which is the Ross Perot oh, company okay. that was that was owned at the time by General Motors and has since been purchased by HP. 
I was going to say, I haven't heard that name in a long time, Ross Perot or either of those. Yeah. Yes, yes. He ran in the uh, 1992 election, I believe. Um, and I, I, even though I had gotten off active duty, I stayed in the reserves and I had just a number of different billets. Honestly, too many to discuss here. We can discuss some of the some of the the highlights of them, but since 1995, yeah, yeah, from 1995 to 2019, I had done, uh, I had been a reservist, but I had been on active duty for years. That's not typical, but because of the war footing, yeah, yeah, I was going to ask, how does how does that work? Well, what, how it works is uh, you look at the major commands, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force on the West Coast at Camp Pendleton, 2nd Marine Expeditionary Force um, at Camp Lejeune, and 3rd Marine Expeditionary Force at Camp Hansen, Okinawa. And what you do is you network, you email, you call, and you look at those major commands, and there's sub-commands. And you look at hot fills, billets that need to be filled right now, whether they be in the U.S., called CONUS, Continental United States, or whether whether they be overseas, and they could be overseas, for example, in Stuttgart, Germany, not necessarily in Iraq or Afghanistan. But because we were basically uh, in two countries conducting combat operations, the active duty had to draw on the reservists, both enlisted and officer, to fill a lot of their billets, whether it was to backfill an active duty individual going forward, meaning into Iraq or Afghanistan, or to actually go forward themselves. And and individuals that had unique qualifications, for example, a very high security clearance, maybe foreign language proficiency, a unique billet, Um, there was no shortage of positions. And frankly, if you did a good job, a six-month assignment could turn into three years. Oh, wow. I had a few of those. So then if – so you sign up with the expectation of six months. Um, It turns into three years. And that's not something that just happens, correct? I assume there's got to be decisions made by your chain of command and and, and all that. Yes, I'll give you one example. Um, I was the representative to the commanding general for Marine Forces Central Command, headquartered in Tampa, Florida. Wow. I was forward in LUD Air Base in Qatar. And that was a one-year assignment that ended up, I actually ended up spending Thanksgiving 16, 17, and 18 at LUD Air Base. I had requested an extension twice, and then the commanding general, before his retirement, he had asked if I would extend one last time at that particular billet in that particular country, and I said yes. So that had been three extensions, two requested by myself and approved, 
and one requested by the commanding general. And that's how that one year assignment ended up being uh, a little over two years. Wow. And and that's it. I, so what would have happened i guess then um if your extension was denied is that you'd have to find another uh uh position to to move into or did they just tell you hey we need this so you're going to go be you know an uh aviation uh, ordinance individual well there's a no, there's a number of things that can happen so you have your one-year assignment you do fine one-year assignment's over Next guy comes in, you do a turnover, it's all good. You go back to the civilian world, you do your civilian job. Uh, you go back to the civilian world, don't do a job. Um, let's say you don't have debt. Let's say um, you're financially independent. Mm-hmm. Go, go take a long vacation, go, go you know, enjoy yourself. Or um, you could, end that one year assignment and then take another assignment in a different billet within that same command because they like your work. So there's a number of things that could happen. It's all situationally dependent. Um, Some assignments I didn't want to extend um, because I had other things going on after the assignment or maybe um, I wasn't real fond of the job or the command. Um, okay. Yeah. Yourself. You know, you keep that to yourself. You yeah. But you don't have to extend. You do your one year, your six month, your two year, your three year. You do it honorably. You do it the best of your ability. You wrap it up. You move on to the next one. There is no shortage of opportunities um, for two reasons. One is the um, I had the M. The MPMOS and I had the Anti-Terrorism Force Protection Specialty, which there's not a lot of Anti-Terrorism Force Protection in officers that are available. And each command, especially forward, needs to have one of those because that individual is responsible for the defense, the force protection, if you will, of U.S. forces and their coalition partners within the fence line. So that was a unique billet that I had, uniquely qualified, that allowed me to take certain billets where any other officer couldn't take it because he's not qualified to do that. And my security clearance. So those two things made me very competitive, you know, shall we say, on billets throughout Iraq and Afghanistan. So with the 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 anti-terrorism uh, piece added to that, now uh, what did can you expound on that a little bit? Like what that entailed for your day-to-day job function? Does that, um, for, I guess, for lack of better terminology, does that get into like an intelligence side of things where you're looking for certain, um, I guess, certain behaviors, certain uh, people, things like that, or is uh, how do, how does that really work? Well, anti-terrorism force protection is especially you have to go to the school and get the training. You have to be um, acknowledged. You have to be signed off by the commanding general in that billet. Uh, And when you're out in the field, like, for example, 
from 2012 to 2013, I was deployed to Afghanistan for the second time as the anti-terrorism force protection officer for one MEF forward, first Marine Expeditionary Force forward. I was the senior advisor to the commanding general, two-star general, for all things force protection. So to simplify it, think of it this way. Within the fence line, or the common phrase is within the wire, mm-hmm. that, is, that is the responsibility, force protection of the commanding general. He delegates that out to the anti-terrorism force protection officer okay. who is responsible for everything within the wire so that the commanding general's operational commanders can focus on operational engagements outside the wire. So when they come back inside the wire after an operation or a patrol or or some um, meeting with village elders or whatever, Mm -hmm. they can come into the fence line and have knowledge that they are in a safe environment. And there's a lot to that. There's static security, uh, physical security, cyber security, digital security. There's human security, patrols inside the wire, outside the wire, guards at checkpoints, guards at gates, guards in towers. There's canines. Um, there's uh, dirigibles or balloons in the sky. Yes, persistent threat detection systems, um, PT, uh, persistent threat detection systems, PTDS, was the four-letter acronym. Uh, The Army and the Navy had balloons in the sky, and they were operating at about 1,500 to maybe 2,500 feet above um, certain operating bases, and they had one or two very, very uh, technologically advanced camera systems in there. So that was the eyes for the security of these small little outposts or bases. And uh, very expensive. They had civilian contractors, non-uniform contractors operating them. Um, In some cases, in other cases, they had Marine enlisted operating the um, cameras that were on the ground tethered to the balloon in the sky at 1,500 to 2,500 feet in the air. Wow. And so then, so that was your, your role then was kind of coordinating um, all of that into one package to advise the, you said the general in charge of the base and how was the base that you were working on when you were in that position? I mean, I've, I've heard that some of these reach the size of small cities. Yes, at, at the base I was at was called Camp Leatherneck. It was BLS, Bastion Shorebach Leatherneck. It was the Afghan Army, the U.S. Marines, and the British all in this one. There were it was one large base divided into three sub bases, all sharing a common perimeter fence. It was very complicated. Who had authorities, who had responsibilities? It it, it got pretty complicated. So in events like that, I imagine you had counterparts on both sides of that that you worked with to, or or did that 
did that fall squarely on your shoulders as a American base? Well, the, um, there were one part of the three sub bases was a quote unquote American base. That was camp Leatherneck. Okay. Um, Bastion was the airfield controlled by the British Leatherneck was the U.S. Marines, and Shorabak was the Afghan Army. I think it was the 215th Corps. I think that's correct. And uh, I would meet, you know, probably once every two weeks with the Afghan representative and the British representative. <clears throat> but they had authority for their portion of this complex. And it was called a complex, the BLS complex. Okay. And so then you guys would work together, share information, I imagine. And um, I, uh, I guess any, any issues or incidents when you were, when you were there, um, I think you mentioned like 2016 on, I think by then a lot of Americans, myself included, when I say that kind of assumed that the, the war was almost over um, in a sense. Um, was that your experience uh, or were there very much still those kinds of things going on? When, when I was there, it was 2012 and 2013. It was marked by two significant events. The first one was the, the significant increase in insider threat referred to as blue on green attacks and killings. And that was Afghans that were being trained and advised by either the U.S. Marines or the British and the Afghans would turn on these Marines or British and kill them. That's referred to as green, uh, green on blue. Actually, my um, my ho- my co-host uh, that I do this podcast with him, um, he spent six years in the Air Force as a TACP. He actually uh, he lost a friend in one of the uh, green on blue incidents um, that you're you're talking about. So um, I didn't realize that they were that um, I don't want to say common, but that it. I guess that it was that it happened uh, more than a handful of times. Oh, it, it was um, it was almost out of control in 2012. Also in yeah. 2012, we had an attack of the BLS compound, specifically the portion of the airfield where the U.S. Marines uh, Harriers were, and. 15 insurgents attacked the BLS complex, specifically the flight line of uh, Marine Air Wing, and blew up four Harriers on the ground and damaged two beyond repair. And and 14 of the 15 insurgents were actually killed. One was was, uh, taken prisoner. Uh, but they did get in to the base and they did attack uh, a number of facilities, uh, the maintenance hangar, the uh, uh, hangar where the um, Harriers were, and also the oxygen area um, that's required for the uh, for the aircraft pilots. So it was a it was a pretty tragic day. The commanding officer. Of one of the squadrons was killed, as well as a sergeant um, mechanic, air, aircraft mechanic. So two Marines were killed, a number were wounded, 
And of the 15 attackers, 14 were killed and one was taken prisoner. And, and it was wow. the first time since World War II where, where an active duty um, Marine squadron was destroyed. Hey, wow. Hey, I did not know that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was an unfortunate situation, to say the least. Uh, two Marine generals, both two-star, were actually directed by the Commandant of the Marine Corps to retire as a result of the investigation into this attack. Wow. And so that's, is that, uh, as res- that investigation, then that's, uh, it, I don't even know how you would go about it. I know, I'm sure there's ways, but I wouldn't even know where to begin with investigations like that. And I assume it, um, from the outcome there, the recommendation of retirement, it was a failure of leadership or uh, something of that, uh, nature that, um, that they ultimately deemed responsible for that, or um, was there more to it? Uh, there was a lot more to it. I had returned from Afghanistan. I had um, exited active duty, and I was uh, in a reserve capacity, and I was called back onto active duty to give my sworn statement to a Army three-star general and a Marine Corps two-star general, and two lawyers in a room. Oh my God. So that's, that's how, that's how deep the investigation went. I was already off active duty. I was already back home and I was called up by a Colonel and I was directed to report to uh, Camp Pendleton for a interview. Um, And ultimately, and this can all be uh, researched online, most of it, mm-hmm. I would say, ninety percent of it's there. Probably uh, some of it's not for yeah. classification purposes, but most of it's out there on the internet. Yeah, we had um, had a friend of mine that was on a couple episodes back, uh, Jake Golding, who was a uh, actually a Harrier mechanic, spent six years in the Marine Corps, um, and uh, obviously not in the same detail, but did specifically mention that uh, incident uh, with the attack on the base and the. the the Harrier mechanics, uh, or the Harrier mechanic that was um, that was killed. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, something that's able to be researched for anybody listening that's interesting and in, or interested in learning more about it. I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, essentially, the commandant of the Marine Corps had directed the two generals. Uh, one was the commanding general of the Marine Air Wing, and the other was the commanding general of one first marine expeditionary force forward regional command southwest because ultimately commanders are responsible for their units and and the commandant of the marine corps after the investigation had deemed the two generals responsible and directed them to retire wow and you said this was around, uh, you said 2012? Yeah, 2012. So then what com- what came next? I think you mentioned there was another, uh, you said it was kind of framed out or, or there, were, there were two incidences that kind of were around the time that you were in that role? 
Oh, well, the first incident was the uh, blue on green, all the blue on green attacks. Okay. And the second one was the attack on the BLS complex. Okay. And that was, and was that within like the same year, right? Both right around 2012. That was 2012. I was there February, 2012 to February, 2013. And that's, that's just crazy to, to, to think about because uh you know i'm thinking about my own my own life experiences in 2012 i was you know 22 uh 23 and as an american citizen right a lot of us i think kind of dismissed the effort so to speak um what i mean is that we i think a lot of, uh, of people assumed that the war was mostly over and that it was on like a uh, status quo level. And it was basically at the level of just keeping the peace. Um, and yeah, so to have that put in that context with the specific dates and everything, um, that that's shocking, you know, uh, at least for myself, um, putting the context and the dates into, you know, how that fits into where I was at in life and things. Um, I did not realize that it was, you know, 2012. So, um, I guess at that point, what, what was next for you then? I believe 2000, well, 2013, Well, a lot of these assignments go back and forth. Um, I would say my next significant assignment was Special Operations Command to Africa. And that was oh, okay. 2014. I got there in um, December of 13. Yes, okay. Now I, I got my dates right. Uh, I got to Stuttgart, Germany in December of 2013, and I left Stuttgart, Germany in April of 15. And that was a a one-year assignment, but I was asked by uh, the commanding officer to extend for three months to, to see the exercise that I was the project manager for on the continent of Africa involving African special forces and U.S. and Western partner special forces. It's called Flintlock wow. 15, which is the one I was responsible for. And it was um, over a $12 million three-week exercise. And I had signing authority for all the procurement in support of that exercise and to coordinate, you know, meetings on the continent involving the U.S. ambassador and Njamina Chad, his staff, African partners, Western partners, and U.S. special forces. Uh, all to culminate in a three-week exercise, which it ended up being a little bit shorter than three weeks, uh, on the continent involving five countries, Cameroon, Chad, Niger, Nigeria, and, um, oh, one other country at the very, very north of the continent. The name eludes me right now, but there were five countries involved, and it was in the Chickenhead region of Central Africa. So, and was that um, was that in 
was that in support of the the war on terror effort um or was that one of those things that was just an adjacent effort at the time because i think we all kind of to some extent forgot that there were other operations and other efforts going on you know the last uh, 20 ish years yes this was a standing exercise this was a culminating um exercise so we would have special forces that are assigned to different countries in Africa. And once a year, they would have an exercise where they all come together. And that exercise annually is called Flintlock. So Flintlock 14, 15, 13, 12. And that year uh, for me was Flintlock 15. So it was a standing, repeating exercise on the continent of Africa. Special Operations Command Africa, as well as AFRICOM, their headquarters was not on the continent of Africa. It was in Stuttgart, Germany. Okay. That's strange. So AFRICOM was not actually in Africa. It's in Germany? Correct. Stuttgart, Germany. And each combatant command, AFRICOM, Central Command, uh, Southern Command, North, Northern Command, each of the major commands, combatant commanders who have geographical um, responsibilities, all have a Special Operations Command subcommand assigned to them. So... The combatant, like AFRICOM, Central Command, Southern Command, NORTHCOM, they're all four-star commands, four-star, full general. And they all have a a Special Operations Command element of varying sizes within their command. So AFRICOM, four-star general, has a two-star Special Operations Command. Central Command, four-star general, has a two-star um, Special Operations Command. So I had I had done assignments with Special Operations Command Africa and Special Operations Command Central Command. So, okay, so then at this point, you finish this, uh, the Flintlock exercise. Um, what year is it when this is wrapping up? Um, that was the exercise was in March of 15 and I finished my assignment with special operations command Africa in April of 15. And then what? And then I took a year off. And then I volunteered and was interviewed to be the officer in charge of the Marine Detachment at Al-Udid Air Base, which is a U.S. Air Force base in Qatar, which is off of Saudi Arabia. So I, okay. I, I started that in May of 16. So you said you interviewed for it. Did, is that a role that you did end up with or did not? No, I did. I had to uh, okay. fly to Tampa, and I was interviewed uh, by the chief of staff, and then I had uh, a psychiatric interview, 
Um, and I had to do all my pre-deployment training, physical fitness tests, um, security clearance validation, all of that stuff. Uh, height and weight standards, because you're representing the, three, the Marine Corps three-star general. You can't be overweight. You can't even look <laughs> like you're yeah, yeah you got to be presentable. In the Marine Corps, there's height, weight standards, but there's also personal appearance, especially for officers. So did all that and was assigned as the officer in charge of the Marine detachment at Al-Udid Air Base in May of 16. And then I finished up there, uh, like I said, and a number of extensions. And uh, I finished up there in December of 17. So a year and a half. I think I said two years earlier. That was incorrect. So I was there from May of 16 to December of 17. And then, so then at that point, you were the, I'm trying to remember the term you used, the non-uniformed. No, I I did that back in 2008. We, We skipped over that. That was 15, oh, okay. That was 15 months in Ramadi with the Marines, and then a number of months with the Army in Kelsu, Iraq, uh, doing forensics for capture kill operations. Um, so that's wow. that's what that was. But um, going back to 2000, December of 17. Then I came off of my orders and I just I decided to retire then. I was at Camp Lejeune and I was presented with a hot fill. That's the term we use in the Marine Corps means there's a billet that currently is unoccupied, but it needs okay. to be occupied. So they considered a hot fill. So the warrant officer at Camp Lejeune, the reserve support unit had approached me and said, sir, we have this hot fill. And because he knew I was retiring, but he also knew I had done a successful tour with Special Operations Command in Africa. And this was with Special Operations Command Central Command headquartered out of Tampa. And their forward element was in Qatar, where I just got back from. So he approached me and I said, oh, heck yeah. I'll do us. I'll do another assignment with Special Operations Command. They they just do things differently. It's just it's a very good place to work. Special Operations Command Africa, Special Operations Command CENTCOM. I said can't be that much different, and it wasn't. It was a very very good assignment. So I didn't retire in December of seventeen. I did a six month tour with Special Operations Command Central Command. Then I was asked to extend after six months i did and i did one year and then the marine corps got involved and they said hey um you need to retire it wasn't for anything that i did it was just that i had been in so long that i was approaching i was approaching sanctuary and that is a term in the marine corps which means in a reserve officer or enlisted for that matter is approaching an active duty retirement and the marine corps has certain limitations on the number of people that that can do that so long story short after my one-year assignment which was 
double what I had signed up for, which was great. Um, that was, um, I ended up getting out there in like January or February, February. Yes. So yeah, that's right. So February of uh, 18 to February of 19, I was with Special Operations Command Africa, and I retired in on March 1, 2019. And that was it. That was the end of the story. The fat lady done summer. <laughs> so uh, at what, I mean, you did a ton of stuff. At what point did you decide that the next step for you um was going to be this project that you're currently working on with Cross Rifles Ranch. Is there well, like I, a like an aha moment where this is it? I figured it out, or is it just something that kind of fell together? It's something. Well, it took on a heartbeat and a pulse. It it just grew. It, when I planned on coming out here, I planned on building a big garage for tractors and trailers and a couple of trucks and a side-by-side, a snowmobile and a motorcycle and a living area above it, really nice. Um, and then it just grew and grew. And then I added a 10-stall horse barn. Then I added a subgrade uh, greenhouse. And then I added a meat processing building. And I, now I'm done with four buildings because I can't fit any more within the fence line. <laughs> so four is it um and it just grew and grew and grew and then i decided i just started talking with people that i'd come in contact with about what i was doing and uh, some of the things that i i would do out there and they said you know oh that sounds like a lot of fun i boy i wish i could you know, I wish there was a place like that around here for me. I mean, there's ranges, indoor, outdoor. Yeah. There's KOAs, there's campsites, but there's not one place that does it all and then provides uh, specialty training. Either I can provide or I have a network of individuals that I've known through the years that could come out and provide periods of instruction. And this could be for the individual. This could be male, female. This could be for the family. I mean, you can go out and shoot the range. Then you can go pet the goats. Then you can ride the horse. Then you can drink at the beer garden and sit around a bonfire. Then you can snowshoe the next day. And you can do it all in one place. And and I just started receiving such favorable response when I wasn't even soliciting it. And it just grew and grew. And then I incorporated then I got my Federal Firearms License Series 7, um, and it's just growing and growing. And now I'm, I'm getting a lot of stuff done. Mother Nature, thank goodness, has given us a lot of build time. Um, cooperating, yeah. Cooperating, yeah. The wind in Wyoming is something fierce. So it's just, I mean, literally when the wind is going, people can't get on a roof. Because it's dangerous. I mean, the wind is so bad. I have, I have a flagpole now with three flags on it, an eight by. It's a forty-foot commercial grade black anodized flagpole on the compound. Mm-hmm. It has three flags, eight by ten U.S. flag, and then under that five by eight Wyoming flag, and then under that five by eight Marine Corps flag. And um, it 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 lends to the ambiance, shall we say? 
Sure. And, uh, and the flags are already getting torn up because of this wind. But it's a I did not know that about Wyoming. Yeah, Wyoming wind. So then now is this uh, is growing and developing training uh, or I guess this camp right for training and, and these experiences. Um, I'm going to make the assumption that you're uh, very much in favor of the uh, the average citizen being uh, armed uh, and and well informed on how to properly do those things. Um, and I only I only ask because I uh, and as with all things today, right? There's divisiveness, uh, mostly due to the internet. <laughs> um, but there seems to be this divisiveness between people that uh, were in the military um, in multiple branches, right? Uh, and this this attitude that if you're a civilian that you didn't serve, um, that you shouldn't necessarily be learning these kinds of things. You shouldn't necessarily be, uh, you know, going through these kinds of experiences and training. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, all of that is a bunch of hogwash. It doesn't matter if you have done military service. It, it, the Constitution has the Second Amendment for a reason. The Second Amendment ensures that we can practice all the other amendments. Yes. You don't need to be a military person to exercise your constitutional right to procure, carry, and employ weapons. Yeah, and I, and 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 it just it 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 befuddles me that we have people that are so adamant in the feeling of the contrary, um, you know, and and some that say that the the wording on the Second Amendment is uh, is vague, um, or that only specifically applies to a a well-regulated militia, but. Um, you know, I think if you look at it from a logical perspective, well-regulated means a lot of different things, right? Um, and if you're expected, as the militia was, right, in during the Revolutionary War, to bring your own firearms and to be proficient with them, um, any logical person would then connect the dots and say, well, then you should to be a competent and safe, uh, you know, member of said regulated militia, you should be able to train and have access to that equipment. Right. Um, regardless of military experience or this, that, the other. The Second Amendment is actually one of the clearest, simplest amendments. And all this vagueness is tossed out there by individuals for a host of reasons don't want American populace armed. Because if you're armed, you can say no. If right. you're not armed, you can't say no. Yeah, it just makes the um, the concept of oppression, or it's not even like a concept. It just it makes yeah, it makes it a lot easier to say that this is how it's going to be, and there is no um, debate on the option, right? It's just it is what it is, and you can't fight back. Um, and with everything that we're seeing today, I mean, um, it's uh september 9th 2021 and uh you know two big things that have happened today um one a victory for the second amendment right uh 
David Shipman was is no longer up for confirmation for head of the ATF, but also uh, President Biden made an announcement that he's trying to force the COVID-19 vaccine on everybody. Um, and, and just in the last couple hours, I know I've seen a lot of stuff on social media about people calling for actual, um, I guess, action against um, the government if that, you know, were, were to come to pass. And uh, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, that's why we have something like the Second Amendment to ensure our right to protect ourselves and, you know, all the things we were just talking about, you know, to, to give ourselves that option, right? Well, yeah, the reason why we have independence from Britain is because we shot them. <laughs> not because we negotiated yeah. with them, not because we had a blue ribbon committee, not because we had a bunch of corrupt politicians make backroom deals. The reason why we secured our independence from Britain was we shot them. It right. doesn't get any sense. We, we took it. We, we took it. We didn't ask for it. We took it at great peril to people's lives, to people's farms, their ranches, their families. It didn't come at any at no cost. But the point is, is it would never have happened unless the citizens were armed. So there's no right. secret as to why individuals in government are trying to disarm the American people and they have a lot of American people believing that we don't need arms because frankly they've been in ever since World War II the education system has done great disservice and we we now have a country full of very weak men or sheeple yeah or fence riders no, I, whatever I, you want to call them I'll agree with that. And honestly, uh, just thinking about my experiences in the, you know, our education system, I very much um, had educators uh, that that pushed a lot of those ideas. Um, I'll say I, I had one teacher that didn't. Um, he was a uh, U.S. history teacher and a, a practical law teacher. Um, it just also so happened that the gentleman was a, or he's a former Marine. Um, and just retired actually last year after 38 years as a, as an educator, uh, Mr. Kurt Briggs. So how coincidence it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, and, uh, and he didn't even discourage people from an opposing viewpoint. Um, but he was probably one of the only that I'm thinking of the only teacher that really encouraged people to have an opinion. Um, and, did a really good job of putting the facts out there, you know, engaging discussion, and because uh, he steered them towards the answers, people usually came to the uh, what I'll call the right conclusions after just some discussion. Um, again, not shaming people for having a dif different opinion, but uh, informing them of some things. You know, looking at some historical uh, events, right? Disarmed populations and what happens to them, right? Uh, and pointing to the Second Amendment as why the United States is uh, in the unique situation that it is, uh, as opposed to other countries in the world, right? Absolutely. History is a good guide. You can look at Nazi Germany. You can look at the former Soviet Socialist Republic. Socialist. That's that's uh, right. cover 
that's a cover word for communists. So these progressives, these liberals, these socialists, those are all cover words for communists. That's really what we're dealing with in this country are communists. And most, not most, yeah. but a large number of them are in the educational system, public, collegiate, private. There's a lot there. Yeah, and I think um, it's because socialism, uh, I think, uh, appeals a little bit better. Communism has the negative connotation just because, again, right, uh, history being the great teacher that it is. We've seen failures upon failures of communist uh communist states communist regimes you know uh russia cuba um you know it, it, time and time again it, you see the failure um i think it's just the the current uh popular trend to point at something like socialism and say no this is different this will be different this time and and all it really is to your point it's it's diet communism you know it's it's the the step right under communism and inevitably i, I mean if you do the research there's not a whole lot of evidence to suggest that communism that that model of government right isn't isn't where we eventually end up um by following socialist policies uh, oh we're, we're we're heading that way right now and it, it, yeah. it could clear yeah, I think it, it, with the media being in the pocket of the corrupt politicians, the big business, the social media giants, um, traditional media, those, you know, in the educational system, those are very, very powerful forces. So I understand why people are docile, why people are. I've even used the term useful idiots. <laughs> no, and that's it's not it's not my phrase. It's just a very accurate phrase. Useful idiots, fence riders, sheeple, docile. Yeah. And with and males, I think beta just... males, soy boys, you know, our, our country is not the greatest generation that fought against the Nazis in Imperial China. That no. greatest generation is I... gone. And it, I think it's I think it's uh, due to just, um, you know, as a culture, we've had a lot of uh, benefits afforded to us, a lot of things that um, many of us take for granted. Uh, and to your point, leads to a lot of people uh, not wanting to have to um, maybe work for some things, uh, have to face the reality that um, nothing's owed to them. Uh, that uh, if you want something in life, you're going to have to be personally accountable and, you know, go get it, work for it. Um, if you want to be better at something, you're going to have to put in the time and it's not anybody else's fault, but, you know, your own. Uh, you just, you make the decision to to do more, to be better, to have more. So um, I think we're kind of in the, the age of uh, instant gratification. Again, going back to the internet, social media, technology. Um, I think it's just, it's, uh, ingrained laziness and, uh, it's very convenient to look at everything that's wrong in the world and blame somebody else. Um, and then we get politicians coming along saying, yep, blame these people. This is why it's happening. And this is the right answer. That's the, 
you know, unfortunately right now the message is that the second amendment guns are the problem. Uh, for whatever reason, people don't realize anything about our border issue, but you know, I digress. Um, it's yeah, just, gun, I, guns are the problem. So the obese person, the fork is the problem. <laughs> well, I mean by that, but that would be applying logic to the situation. Um, which we don't do real well as a society right now. Uh, no, logic no, is not it, real high on the list. It's it's not. It's it's actually laughable. Um, it's sad. It's frustrating. Sometimes it's angering, but most of the time it's laughable because I just I see where things are going. I I'm in touch with what I can affect. Right. What I can't change. You know, and that goes back to, you know, what I'm building, you know, the vision that I'm realizing. I want to help people. Uh, I want to train people. I want to familiarize people with safety techniques, with weapons employment. I want people to just have a good time outdoors in the summer and the winter around healthy food, around animals because that's what I can control. That's what I can use my right. time, my resources, and my energy on. The rest and of the stuff, I'm just going to have to watch as Rome burns. And that's uh, and that's important, you know. And that's very much to this, the same point uh, why this podcast was started um, to share information with people to help people be better informed. Um, and I think it's great the work that you're doing with the ranch. Um, so real quick, and we'll wrap it up here because then we're we've been going a little bit. But okay, uh, is uh, where can people find more information on the ranch online? And then, um, what is your target date to be up and running? Crossed Rifles Ranch, C R O S S E D Rifles with an S Ranch dot com. And I'm shooting for July 1st, and I'll have limited opening. And what I mean by that is some of the ranges that I plan on providing will not be operational on July 1st. Mm-hmm. But on the web page, I just hired a new web developer, and uh, that web page will be enhanced through the winter right now i'm just focused on because of the weather on the building season the physical building season yeah (laughs) once once mother nature shuts me down then i focus on the web i focus on my national firearms act license in addition to my series 7 alcohol tobacco firearm and explosive license um, and I focus on my federal affiliation so I can contract with federal and state authorities to utilize this facility as well, because it has a lot of application um, to perhaps National Guard, um, civilian and military units can utilize this facility. Oh, absolutely. So there's a there's a lot here uh, and I'll be focusing on on that sort of stuff the web the certifications the licenses this winter all in preparation for july one that sounds that sounds awesome and i i look forward to uh being able to make make my way out there and check it out once everything's uh open and and up and running 
taking uh, taking full advantage. Um, oh, you'll, you'll definitely hear about it. I'm even um, going to be do, doing some radio advertising um, around the holidays in preparation for the June one. All the accommodations will be up and running. I have varying levels of accommodations. Park your truck on the back of the compound. Sleep in your trunk. Uh, sleep in your truck, <laughs> not in your trunk. Um, uh, the the tents in the back of pickup trucks has been very popular. Yeah, so, the overlanding thing has really blown up the last couple of years. Yeah, it's a very cost effective way to to camp. So there's that. Park your truck. The second one is campsites with electrical power. Um, the third is RV sites. So I have eight parking spots. I have uh, 12 camping sites. I have uh, 10 RV sites with 30 and 50 amp service and water. No sewage, but 30, 50 amp service and water. And then I have 36 bunks in communal configuration, which like is hostile in Europe. Um, that sort of thing where you just go into a room with a stranger Right. Or, or a bunk room can be rented and I have two six person bunk rooms and two 12 person bunk rooms. So all the accommodations um, will be up and running by July 1st and a, a certain number of, of activities and adventures will be up and running as well. That is that's outstanding because um, that's going to be able you're going to be able to house. I mean, large classes, uh, individual groups, uh, that's going to be, um, uh, that's going to be outstanding. I know there, there's not too many places in the country that I'm aware of that they can support, um, that much volume and traffic, uh, to that, to that level. Uh, well, and I'm also keeping down the cost because I want people to take advantage of this and, <clears throat> Profit is not my number one motive. So when you go on the web page and you see what the costs are for these accommodations, you'd be like, wow, that's that's insanely low. Well, it's intentionally insanely low. Activities, there'll be a cost associated with those, range time, so on and so forth. And again, that of course, will be done yeah. during the winter. There is no cost for those activities and adventures yet that will be done um, during the non-building season. I also plan on affiliating with a number of groups and individuals and, ha- and hosting them to come out to this facility and utilize it to, to give their period of instruction. I don't consider myself the, the know-all, the be-all when it comes to all the military or law enforcement training. There's a lot of experts out there. I'm not threatened by them. I embrace them. And I even want them to come to my facility and give their period of instruction. Um, And I look to, again, this winter, reach out to those individuals and those groups and offer my facility up for their use. And that's that's the the awesome part with with that is uh, what you mentioned about bringing other people in and the I think. Some people, well, I even think I know some people in this uh, community get threatened by people that may know more. Um, and I think that the sharing of information is the the biggest thing that we can all do to assist one another, regardless of what 
experience or walk of life um you know you have or, or where you're from and what you you do or don't know um so that's that's outstanding and i know that there are we talked uh you know on the phone previously you know there were several companies uh reputable companies that um we had discussed and and uh it just it's i'm excited to to see you know how it all comes together and and, and truthfully to make it out there myself and and take advantage of it well so. the, the number of companies that you mentioned during our last telephone conversation are still on the whiteboard to, to the rear of me. I have a big nice. whiteboard on wheels. I love whiteboards. Um, it's just I, I do as well. Throw all your ideas and it sticks to the wall like spaghetti. So again, those are the sorts of contacts. Like I'll, I'll be calling you up again this winter, blowing the dust off some of the stuff we previously talked about so I can make inroads into these individuals and offer no, up this facility because this facility will have the accommodations. It it will have a commercial kitchen. It has a hundred thousand dollar commercial kitchen. Yeah, I I don't know too many uh, if any other camps or facilities, ranches, whatever you want to call it, by any by any label. I don't know of any other um, facilities that offer something like that. You know, especially when you combine it with, like you said, the the accommodations for for housing, um, the the multiple uh, firearms ranges, and then additionally um, things like the the livestock and everything else. So uh, it, it definitely covers more than your um, conventional outdoor uh, training range, right? Um, yes. Which I think sets you guys apart by a mile and then some. The tagline of Cross Rifles Ranch is more than your mother's day camp or your father's dude ranch. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. And, and it's, it's intended uh, to be edgy, but not offensive. Right. I don't I right. Love, I think I love camps and I love dude ranches. I, I, I'll affiliate with all of them. If so, you know, I'll even have on my website, you know, these affiliations hey, directing people to other venues that may satisfy their vacation or their training better. Again, I'm not driven by profit, and that relieves me of such pressure. It's uh, it's almost uh, unimaginable the amount of um, positive thoughts I have of this facility and what it can be because I'm not governed by bank debt or profit and that that uh, that in itself is also a big uh um separating factor from a lot of other places and and other facilities even other um you know training companies and things like that i know uh when you start looking at some of it it gets uh very um price intensive and i think in some instances is warranted but i think you also see a lot in this uh, community, this space, right? Uh, people trying to take advantage and and really make um, a lot of money off of people that just don't know any better. Um, and it's a shame because I think that we can all offer each other a lot uh, and to put something like money, you know, uh, ahead of those relationships and that kind of growth um, is just not the way we're going to improve the world. 
Correct. I want people to come out. I want them to be energized. I want them to get an adrenaline rush. I want them to have joy, not fleeting happiness, but joy. Go out, pet the goats, go look at the fish in the aquaponics tank, go ride a horse, and then go get your gun toting on. Um, but you can oh, do yeah. it all at one facility, and then you, with your friends or your family, you have some hearty stew, you go out to the beer garden after you're done shooting, of course, training and safety are paramount. Then Absolutely. you go get your drink out. Sounds like heaven to me, brother. So, um, yeah, like I said, I, I certainly look forward to it. I'm going to be watching the website and I, um, I look forward to our conversations over the winter. I'm excited to help however I can. Thank you, um, Niall. I will definitely take you up on that. For Once sure. The building season's done. You're right. Right. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you, Thomas, for taking the time to sit down with me tonight. I know you got a lot going on, um, so I appreciate it. And I know the listeners do as well. Uh, one more time for everybody, it's crossedriflesranch.com. And uh, look for that over the winter to see some more uh, updates and more information on when that goes live. Um, again, uh, thank you, Thomas, for, for taking the time to sit down with me. Well, it was a real pleasure. Thank you for your time as well. Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Tom Baker. Uh, great man, did a lot of great things, had an outstanding career in the Marine Corps. Uh, and I, I, I do, I look forward to, uh, helping him out as much as I can anyway. Uh, and certainly what Cross Rifles Ranch, uh, turns into what it becomes uh, once it goes live uh, and is able to start accepting uh, students uh, and guests. Uh, there's not too many facilities, right? Um, from everything he explained, not too many facilities in the country that can touch that. Um, and I think it's something that's sorely needed in the world today, especially with uh, you know the recently announced closure uh, or sale, I should say, of Thunder Ranch, Clint Smith's operation. Um, so having something like that is uh, it's it's great for the community. Um, and certainly uh, exciting knowing that uh, there's going to be outside instruction uh, and uh, and classes and things being held there as well as a you know a multitude of opportunities for uh, so many different things that that we we value here at the prepared mindset and that uh, is beneficial for everyone to participate in that's all I got for you guys this week. Uh, like I said, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I was very happy to uh, be able to sit down with Tom and talk to him uh, about his career and his endeavors. Uh, until next week, guys, get out there, train hard, and like we always say here, be prepared. <laughs>